0: Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Amy, and I'm the rector here at Incarnation. Um, And you're probably aware of this, but tomorrow is Halloween. And Halloween actually began its life in the church. It began as All Hallows' Eve, or even, the way we sort of say even song. Um, And it was this prayer vigil the night before All Hallows, which we now call All Saints. And we will observe All Saints next Sunday. But the history of All Hallows' Eve and Halloween gets a little fuzzy about how it turned from this nighttime prayer vigil into what we do today, which really doesn't look anything like a prayer vigil. And it's pretty clear that the church took some of the symbols and the rituals from the surrounding cultures and absorbed them into their own practices and used them to point toward both the reality of death, which we see very clearly on Halloween, and the hope of resurrection. So it's this really interesting holiday, this weird mashup of stuff where we sort of openly mock death with plastic yard decor and our costumes, and we sort of play right up at the edge of some of our deepest fears, the things we're actually really scared of. But then we also practice some of the most generous hospitality of the whole year. We hang out with our neighbors for hours. We go over to people's houses uninvited. They come to our house uninvited. We knock on each other's doors. And we sort of lavishly and freely just dispense grace all night long in the shape of little fun sized candy bars. So, whatever layer of historical or cultural or religious meaning we sort of pile onto this holiday, there's one thing that we know for sure is that Halloween, despite all the costumes, all the decorations, all the pretending, it's actually this night that shows us something really real, even if just a glimpse. Because on Halloween, we just cannot escape the reality of death and pain and suffering and our own fears. And we might try to mock them, we might try to dismiss them or tame them with a good costume or with some funny or scary yard decorations. We might actually pray for protection if we're passing by a particularly gruesome yard but we can't unsee that reality that Halloween puts in front of us. And we're continuing through First Timothy this morning, and in our text today, Paul has seen something he can't unsee not just death, but the overcoming of death in the person of Jesus. And last week, we read this passage that I said was like the heart of the book of Timothy. It's the hinge point that everything leads up to and everything flows from. And it was this, that in Jesus, God was revealed in flesh, vindicated in spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among Gentiles, believed in throughout the world, and taken up in glory. And Paul called this reality the mystery of godliness, And a mystery in the biblical sense is something that has been hidden, but is now being revealed. And this mystery is the pattern and the source of our whole life as Christians. It's a mystery that is being revealed in our lives right now in the present, and that will ultimately be fully revealed in eternity. And so last week I said this mystery was going to echo through the rest of 1 Timothy, or since tomorrow's Halloween, we might say that this passage, this mystery, haunts the rest of the book of First Timothy. So that wherever we hear Paul talking about godliness from now on, and he will talk about it a lot, we can hold in mind that this is what he means. For Paul, godliness is participation in this mystery of God-made flesh, God overcoming death and pain. God being revealed to all people and reigning in glory. And so our godliness is our own outworking of that mystery. And today's text is really tightly linked to that mystery that we read last week, which is why I keep talking about it. Today, Paul is going to continue these instructions in godliness. He writes to Timothy train yourself in godliness, and godliness is valuable in every way. And so we're gonna look at these three aspects of godliness that we see in the text today. How we see our bodies, how we see people, and then how we use our words. And each one of these aspects of godliness is an outworking of that mystery that we read about. So first, how we see our bodies. And this flows from that mystery that God was revealed in flesh. And that has huge implications for how we live as people in bodies. God became flesh to reconcile human flesh to himself. And that's why last week Paul said, Don't listen to those teachers who tell you not to eat certain things, to abstain from marital intimacy. Everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected. So receive God's good, created gifts in your body and just say thank you. And today Paul goes on in verses 7 and 8 and says, Train yourself in godliness, for while physical training is of some value, godliness is valuable in every way, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So physical training, bodily stuff, has some value in the Christian life, Paul says. These practices of training the flesh can be helpful. Those teachings about denying food or denying marriage that he denounced last week, those are not helpful for the church at Ephesus right now. But there is room to imagine that there is some physical training that provides some value. And we know this because Jesus himself commended fasting and the church through the ages has practiced different spiritual disciplines, practices with their bodies. But Paul says these practices are limited. They might help grow our capacity to participate in this mystery of the life of God, but these practices are not that life itself. And so true godliness is not about what we deny our bodies. It's about how we orient our bodies, our whole selves, toward the fullness of the life to come. When all flesh and all creation will be fully reconciled to God. So that's our bodies. The next aspect of godliness in this passage is how we see people, and this flows from that mystery that Jesus was proclaimed among Gentiles and believed in throughout the world. And here, the use of Gentiles is not necessarily making a huge Jew-Gentile distinction because Jesus was also revealed to Jewish people. It's more saying that salvation is open to everyone— to all kinds of people to all nations to all languages not just to certain kinds of people but to all people the whole world and in a way this is another affirmation of that idea that everything god created is good and nothing is to be rejected and that includes every kind of person all people it's actually been a pretty constant theme through first timothy but one we haven't really picked up on So earlier in chapter 2, verse 4, we heard that God, our Savior, wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And this consistent drumbeat of all, everyone, world, helps us make sense when we come to verse 10, where Paul writes, For to this end we toil and suffer suffer reproach, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled on this verse, trying to make the word Savior or the word all mean a few different things at the same time, or trying to kind of shoehorn this into a framework of limited or unlimited atonement. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's great. But if you were in sort of a young, restless, and reformed space at some time in your life, then you may have heard some of this wrestling. You may have read some of the ink spilled on this passage. But the plain sense of the text and the way the church has mostly read it throughout history is a lot simpler than that. It simply says salvation through Christ is for all people. For everyone, and that those who believe respond to Christ in faith, but the offer is wide open to everyone. And so, true godliness leaves no room in the way we view people for a narrow or exclusive gospel. True godliness is longing to see all people brought into God's saving love. So we've seen true godliness in regard to our bodies, in regard to people. And then finally, and this is kind of the main thrust of the text, in how we use our words and our speech. Because the mystery of faith is something that is proclaimed. And so this passage has a lot to say about what our proclaiming looks like and sounds like. In verse 6, he calls the words of the faith and the sound teaching nourishing. Godly speech is nourishing. It feeds people. It strengthens and sustains people. And then Paul goes on. In verse 11, he tells Timothy to command and teach. In verse 12, he says to set an example in his speech. In verse 13, he says give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhorting and teaching. And in verse 14, he mentions prophecy. And we get the impression from this passage that the church at Ephesus is a really talkative church, that they're very wordy, that Timothy and those around him are just doing a lot of talking. And that talking includes teaching, it includes exhortation, it includes prophetic speech, and the reading aloud of scripture, which back then would have meant the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And for thousands of years, the public reading of Scripture has been the way that God reminded his people who they were and what story they were a part of and who their God was and what he was like. And the church, from its earliest times, has continued this practice before they had the New Testament and then after they did. And we still do this. That's why we read four passages of Scripture every Sunday, And I must say, we kind of had our all-star readers today, so nicely done. It's why our prayer book and our liturgies and our daily office are just almost entirely composed of Scripture. And it's why when we preach, we try to stay really close to the Scripture. The reading of Scripture anchors all of us in the story of God, in the story of who we are. And that is the story that we proclaim Well, I want to close just paying particular attention to one kind of speech that Paul talks about here that is something we don't talk about a lot, but something that crops up a lot in the New Testament. And that's prophecy, prophetic speech. Verse 14 says, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you through prophecy, with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. And prophecy doesn't have to be a scary idea. It's simply speech that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's a revelation that God gives for the encouragement or the building up or sometimes the challenge of his people. And Jesus told his disciples that people would prophesy in his name. And we see that from the opening scenes of Acts all through the New Testament the New Testament church is a prophesying church. They are speaking words from the Holy Spirit to one another. And in this passage, it looks like we might have a very early picture of something like an ordination of Timothy. Because we see the leaders of this church at Ephesus have surrounded Timothy. They have prophesied his spiritual gifts. This doesn't mean that their words brought these gifts into being, it just means that their words saw something that was there and spoke them, and then they laid their hands on him. They took those words that were spoken, and they touched his shoulders and spoke them while touching his flesh. It's this embodied act, and it's so powerful. The words we speak to one another are so powerful, and Because of that, we also need to be careful with them. Anytime any of us claim to speak for God or claim a prophetic utterance, we also open up the possibility of all kinds of harm. And that's why Paul pays such close attention to these instructions about words, about the way of speaking, about the kind of life that accompanies the speaking. Words are powerful, and so they have to be accompanied with a life that demonstrates the words, they have to be anchored and rooted in Scripture, and they have to be rooted in a community of faith. But on the other hand, I think sometimes we can be so hesitant to speak those words that we actually neglect the gift that is in us, the thing that Paul is warning Timothy not to do. We can sometimes fail to put these things into practice, which is what Paul tells us to do. So true godliness doesn't let us do this. Godliness means speaking and teaching and prophesying and reading aloud words that are nourishing, words that anchor us in who God is and what he's doing, words that encourage and strengthen one another in the faith. And we speak these words prayerfully, we speak them in community, hemmed in by Scripture, dependent on the Spirit, but also boldly and expectantly. Well, in just a minute, in our silent reflection time, we're going to do what Paul says, and we're going to practice this. We're going to put this kind of godly speech into practice. And so I've actually put the instructions in your um, handout under the silent reflection and song of response, so you don't have to remember them, but I'm going to give them here too, and then tell you what we're going to do with them. So first what I want you to do is to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you a gift that is in you, that God has given you for the building up of his church, of his kingdom, of his people. And then write it down. I would recommend writing it on a place on your bulletin that you don't mind tearing off later. And when we come up for communion, we will bring these papers where we've written our gifts. We'll have a place where you can drop them, uh, probably right here, uh, just as an offering of ourselves and our gifts to God, to this community, to his work in the world. And no one will read those. <laughs> so it's, this is a confidential activity. Katie and I are not going to then go and read them all. Uh, this is just an act, an offering. And then secondly, I want you to look around this room. I want you to look at the people in this community and ask God to reveal a gift that is in someone else, a gift that would bless or encourage or strengthen this community. I want you to pray over it. Ask for wisdom and discernment. And then if you feel comfortable later at the peace or after the service, tell that person. We will trust together that the Holy Spirit will filter what we tell one another, that we will interpret, that we will submit this to prayer and scripture and to the community. But let's practice this simple act of prophecy just like Paul tells us to. We can imagine this whole exercise as sort of a Halloween reversal because instead of putting on a costume or hiding behind a mask, we're actually going to help each other take them off. And instead of taming or mocking or dismissing death, we're actually going to practice stepping into more of the resurrection life that Jesus wants for his church. We're going to practice seeing each other And speaking to one another in the way that God does, participating together in this mystery of godliness. So let me pray for us as we enter our time of silence. Well, God, thank you for this mystery that you were revealed in flesh, vindicated in the spirit seen by angels, proclaimed to the Gentiles, and believed in all the world. And we ask that we would enter more and more into that. We ask that you would give us ears to hear you and eyes to see what you want to reveal in and through us. Make us wise and discerning. In Jesus' name, amen.